Chapter 10 Seven and Nine Years Among the Comanches and Apaches An Autobiography by Edwin Eastman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Indian Life the Comanches are supposed to be a branch or subdivision of the Shoshone, or Snake Nation, who, under various names or tribal appellations, dominate the entire area from the borders of British America to the Rio Grande. Although these tribes are known by many different names, such as Shoshones, Bonacs, Utahs, Lippins, Apaches, Navajos, Pawnee Picks, Comanches, or Caguas. They vary but little in their general habits of life. Such differences as do exist are mainly the result of variations of climate. Until within a few years, the Comanches were undoubtedly the most warlike and powerful race of Indians on the continent. With the Apaches, Navajos, and Lippins, they formed a sort of Indian confederacy, rarely at war among themselves, but always with the whites. And when united, able to put a force in the field which would ride over the Texan frontier like a whirlwind, and without hesitation penetrate hundreds of miles into Mexico, desolating whole provinces returning sated with slaughter and burdened with plunder. The Comanches are, or rather were at this time, divided into five bands, usually acting entirely independently of one another, but uniting in case of emergency, or for the purpose of making their annual raid on the Mexican towns. This occurs at the season when the buffaloes have migrated to the north and is jocularly termed by the savages the Mexican moon. It was on their return from one of these expeditions that the band of Tonsororio, the head chief of the nation, had intercepted our unlucky party. The band of Tonsororio, Lone Wolf, was the most numerous and powerful of the five, and hence was usually able to undertake their forays without the assistance of the other parties. Twice only, during my long residence among them, was a general levy or muster of the whole nation deemed necessary, and it was a spectacle not easily forgotten. In the first instance, a rate of greater magnitude than usual had been determined upon, and every warrior was assembled to take part in it. Assembled at our village, they were joined by nearly 500 Apaches, led by Mato Chiga, Little Bear, their second chief. Thus, when they defiled through the western portal of the valley, Tansaroyo, rode at the head of nearly 7,000 warriors. With the Comanches, as with most other tribes, the chief rank is held by hereditary descent. Thus, 
the son of a chief usually succeeds his father in the rulership of his tribe or band. There are, of course, exceptions to this, but it is the general rule. The head chief and second chief of the nation, however, are chosen from among the chiefs of each tribe, the selection being made by the council. This body numbers 12 members and are chosen by the whole nation, holding their positions during life or until incapacitated by old age. Among them are found the most distinguished warriors of the tribe and the head priest is also included in their number. The installation of a new counselor is considered by the Indians an occasion of great importance, and as it is a very interesting ceremony, I will briefly describe it. On the occasion in question, Aran Aja, bloody arm, had announced his determination to retire from the position of first counselor which he had held for many years. Calling together the chiefs and braves, he addressed them somewhat as follows. Brothers, warriors of the Ayatan, for many winters Bloody Arm has faithfully served you. He is no longer young. His body is weakened by the many wounds he has received in your defense, and he wishes for repose, and to be no longer burdened with the cares of the council. Bloody Arm's medicine is no longer good upon the warpath and he will enter the medicine lodge so that he will not be obliged to go to war, but can end his days in peace. We have many brave young warriors who are deserving of promotion. Let one of these be selected to fill my place. And may his medicine be good, and his warpath be fortunate warriors. I now give up the office of first counselor. I have done. Tonsaroyo replied as follows. Aranaja! Our hearts are sorry that you have decided to cease to be our first counselor. You have served the nation long and faithfully. Your counsel has been wise. Under your guidance, we have greatly prospered, and we would rather that you should still direct us. But you say that your body is weak, and that you desire repose. It is well. We know that you have received many wounds at the hands of our enemies. That you were always first in the charge, and never turned your back upon the foe. We honor you for your bravery, and you will always possess the love and respect of your people. Now we must select a twelfth counselor 
Will you name him for us? No, Tansaroyo, said the old man. I never had an enemy among my warriors, and I will not begin to make them now. They are all brave, and I should not know whom to choose. Let the nation decide who is to succeed me. I have done. The form of an election was then gone through with. Two braves being named for the position by the council, and a vote taken in the following manner. Two heaps of shells, one black, the other white, were placed upon the ground before the temple. Each warrior selected one from either pile, as he preferred, and placed the shells so taken so as to form a third pile. When all had deposited a shell in this heap, they were counted by two of the elder counselors, and the first candidate, who was a protege of Tonsoroyo, was declared rejected, having received too many of the black shells. As the rule is that if more than a certain prescribed number, which varies according to the number taking part in the election, are cast against the candidate, he must be withdrawn, and another presented for approval. On the second ballot, Nawa Sedda, Strong Shield, was chosen without opposition. He belonged to the band of Stone Hawan and was selected as much because of the personal popularity of his chief as from any merit of his own. For, although a daring warrior, he was a reckless fellow, and scarcely fitted to command or advise. The ceremony of his installation followed, and was conducted within a medicine lodge, erected for that especial purpose. Here were assembled the chiefs, priests, members of the council, and the leading warriors, with as many of the other braves as could possibly crowd into it. The new dignitary was then presented with a white buffalo robe, and a headdress of eagle's plumes stained red, the insignia of his office. New arms and equipments were given him, and it was formally announced that Noah Seda was the twelfth counselor of the Comanche nation, and that the next war party should be led by him. More speech-making followed, some of it decidedly eloquent, but with which I will not weary the reader. Tansoroyo presented the new counselor with twenty horses and a magnificent white shield. The assemblage then separated, the remainder of the day was devoted to feasting in honor of the event. The younger warriors amusing themselves as usual with horse racing and ball play. Nayo Sada failed to justify the wisdom of this selection, for his first war party resulted in disaster. Starting with about 80 warriors on a raid into the Utah country to steal horses, he led his unlucky band into an ambush, 
and barely 20 of them escaped, their leader being among the killed. The marriage relation can hardly be said to exist among the Comanches. Each chief or warrior, it is true, may have as many wives as he pleases, and they generally please to have a rather liberal number. But the tie is not a sacred one as with us, and no ceremony is required to legalize it. The commerce of the sexes is practically unrestricted. The Comanche procures his wife, or more properly his slave, by purchase, by barter, or, is in the case of the white captives, by force of arms. And he disposes of her in an equally summary fashion when wearied of her. One particularly horrid custom to which their white prisoners are frequently subjected is the following. It sometimes occurs that a dispute will arise as to the ownership of a white captive. In this event, it is referred to the Council for Settlement, and should they be unable to agree upon a decision, she then becomes common property, the victim of all. The Comanche has the same aversion to labor of any kind which characterizes all the aboriginal races. When not on the warpath, or engaged in the pursuit of game, his time is about equally divided between eating, smoking, gambling, and sleeping. All the burdens of life fall upon the women, and they must endure them as best they may. Their duty it is to plant and cultivate the maize, and the few fruits and berries which the Indians deem necessary for food. They gather and prepare the pinion nuts, and cure the taseo, and prepare the food for their brutal masters. In the dressing of skins, and the manufacture of leggings, moccasins, and the few other articles of apparel which are required for comfort or ornament, they are especially skilled. And despite their multifarious duties, they manage to accomplish a great deal of this work. In the matter of diet, the Comanches are not by any means particular. Buffalo meat is their staple, and they prefer this to any other food. But when this fails them, there are always horses in plenty, and I found horse beef to be very good eating, although at first the very idea of tasting it was repulsive to me. Before I had returned to civilization, however, I had partaken of so many queer dishes and strange articles of food, that if hungry, I do not think I would hesitate at anything short of cannibalism. A sort of stew, of which the flesh of young puppies forms the principal ingredient, is another Comanche luxury, and I learned in time to consider it very palatable. But I fancy most people would rather take it for granted than put it to the test. However, if any of my readers feel disposed to try the experiment, I can assure them that they may do so without fear of unpleasant consequences. The Comanches, in common with all the other horse Indians, are much addicted to horse racing, and almost every afternoon some sport of this kind would take place on the plain before the village. 
These trials of speed were for some wager, and the younger warriors would frequently lose all their worldly possessions in backing some unlucky steed, whose powers of speed or endurance they have overrated. At such times, the taunts and exultations of the victors would sometimes give rise to a quarrel. Knives would be drawn and brandished, and a bloody fight seemed imminent. But the Yeul Pa Saina, or Indian policeman, would usually succeed in quelling the disturbance before much harm could be done. If his efforts seemed unavailing, the appearance of Tansaroyo, battle axe in hand, would be the signal for an immediate dispersion of the crowd. The intending combatants, especially sneaking off with great precipitation. Knowing the fiery temper of Lone Wolf, and the fact that he looked upon these brawls in a phrase with great disfavor, and had strictly prohibited their occurrence, the quarrelsome young warriors fully apprehended that he would have no hesitation in braining the first offender who came within his reach. This warlike chieftain was a man of very marked ability and governed his tribe with admirable skill and judgment. From his severity, however, he was feared rather than liked by his people, and although implicitly obeyed at all times, he did not possess a tithe of the popularity which Stone Hawan, the second chief, enjoyed. The latter was a bold, manly fellow, a really brave man and a sagacious leader. Unusually successful in war, his parties never returned without either hare or horses, as was frequently the case with others, and his invariable good nature and lavish generosity rendered him a universal favorite with his people. He was a pure-blooded Comanche, and altogether one of the finest specimens of his race I ever beheld. To him, I am indebted for many acts of kindness, and but for his favor, the opportunity of which I availed myself for making my escape might never have occurred. End of chapter 10